Hello, everyone, and welcome to Six Pack of Facts, a weekly way of expanding your brain, six refreshing facts at a time. My name is Alex, and this week we've got a pair of topics that might conjure up some dark and dank thoughts, but are way more interesting than any spooky cave you've ever imagined. Turn on your headlamps. It's time for stalactites and stalagmites and echolocation. Level one. Both stalactites and stalagmites are speleothems, structures formed by mineral deposits in caves. Stalactites hang from the ceiling of a cave and they're shaped like rock icicles. Rocksicles, I suppose one could say, and stalagmites grow from the ground up. An easy way to remember that is stalactite, C for ceiling, and stalagmite, G for ground. Whether you're talking about C's or G's though, it all starts with rain. As rainwater passes through organic material, it picks up carbon dioxide, forming carbonic acid. When this acid passes through tiny cracks in the top of a cave, it dissolves calcite in the limestone. Once that droplet of water reaches the open air of the cave, it releases the carbon dioxide gas, kind of like opening a bottle of pop or soda or coke or whatever you call it, and leaves behind the calcite to harden. Now, even though stalagmites are formed from the ground of a cave up, they're created by the same water source as a stalactite. They're just built by the material the drop of water doesn't deposit on the stalactite formation. Basically, a slow drip equals a stalactite, a fast drip equals a stalagmite. And it's just a little bonus fact at the end of level one here, even though typically stalactites and stalagmites are made from limestone, there are actually a bunch of different kinds. There's lava, ice, and even concrete stalactites and stalagmites, although those are only usually a couple centimeters tall. Level two. Let's talk about what affects the rate of stalactite and stalagmite buildup. Obviously, it's affected by the amount of rainfall in the area above the cave, but animals also play a bit of a downer role. The more animals living above a cave, the more organic material there is for the rain to latch onto when it falls. The more organic material, the more carbonic acid. The more carbonic acid, the more, probably, stalactites and stalagmites. Now, if it's cold out, the soil won't be as rich in carbon dioxide gas, but kick up the thermometer a little bit, and those animals are going to be decaying all over the place, pumping the soil above the cave with tons of carbon dioxide. This, of course, increases the amount of carbonic acid that the rain picks up, which, you know, you get it. So, if you see an amazing stalactite or stalagmite formation, it could be thanks to an entire legion of dead animals. That's nature. It's beautiful, right? Level 3. Let's talk shape, and let's narrow this down to just stalagmites. Now, they form in a variety of shapes and sizes. In fact, the largest known mite, as I call it, is located in the Songdong Cave in Vietnam, which is also the largest natural cave in the entire world, go figure. And that stalagmite is more than 230 feet tall, which is completely bonkers. We're going to concentrate on the base. How do they get so wide? Now, you might think it's because of the droplet's splash. It carries more calcite across a wider area, but that's actually wrong. It's actually because the droplets aren't landing in the same spot with every drop. Sometimes, they even land inches apart. 
The faster an object moves, the more vortices, which is a really fun word, it creates in the medium it's moving through like water or air, kind of like the wake behind a boat. When a droplet drops just a few feet, it doesn't pick up enough speed to create this turbulence, so it drips in a tight pattern. If the drop is falling 100 feet, however, it carries a lot more of this turbulence, enough, in fact, to bump itself in a chaotic pattern across several inches of the cave floor. The more these drops are affected by their vortices, the wider the base of the stalagmite will be. Now with all these stone structures littering caves that are sometimes pitch black, it's understandably difficult to navigate them, unless you use echolocation. Level one. When you talk about echolocation, you have to start with ultrasound. Now, ultrasound is not magical. It's actually no different than any other sound you hear, except you just can't hear it. And this all comes down to a sound's frequency, or how many times per second a sound wave repeats itself. The exact starting point of ultrasound differs from person to person, but it's generally around 20 kilohertz or 20,000 hertz. Dogs can hear up to 45,000 hertz, which is pretty high, but bats? Bats can hear up to 200,000 hertz. About 70% of bat species use echolocation to help them navigate in the darkness and catch prey. Within that 70%, each species of bat has its own unique call, and by using a device called a bat detector, which yes, is a little on the nose, the echolocation calls can be recorded and converted into a frequency range that's audible to humans. Let's take a listen to some of those recordings. First, we have the silver-haired bat. The noctual bat. bat and the horseshoe bat. Level two. When it comes to chowing down, bats typically have the advantage over the prey for one simple reason. Most insects can't hear ultrasound. But some moths can counter their foes with an interesting and amazing technique. Tiger moths and hawk moths rub their genitals together to create high-frequency sounds that effectively jam the echolocation of bats. You heard that right. Males have organs called claspers that clamp onto the female while mating, and females have organs called genital plates. When a male rubs his claspers together, or when a female rubs her genital plates together, they create high-frequency sounds that can affect a bat's echolocation. The bats get confused, fly off, and the moths are free to rub their junk together for another day. Level 3 Now even though we're mostly talking about bats here because of the stalactite and stalagmite connection, humans can also use echolocation to see around in the darkness. 
Some people can use sharp clicks made by their tongue to effectively echolocate. Blind people might be more adaptable to this ability simply because they're more in tune with the auditory world, but actually anyone can learn how to do it. It is limited though. Think of glass. Echolocation can identify its solidness, but not its transparency. To someone using echolocation, it might as well be a concrete wall. Other materials that absorb sound, like a blanket, are practically invisible when using echolocation. But that is still pretty cool. That does it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed yourself, consider subscribing. If you really enjoyed yourself, consider leaving a review. And if you didn't enjoy yourself, you're probably not listening to this anyway. I'll be back again next week with a fresh pack of facts. And until then, stay thirsty. Can't get enough of these refreshing facts? There are three easy ways you can help support the show. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts, leave a quick review. Then, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Then, share the show with a friend. The more, the factier. Stay thirsty.